You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, the book of Hebrews is like a photo album. It gives us image after image of our Savior Jesus Christ and his ministry in the heavenly places today. As we flip through the pages of this album, see these pictures of Jesus, we become more connected to him. And the image that we get tonight is of Jesus as a mediator, a mediator. Uh, I want you to read this yourself with me. So I'm going to invite you to pull out a Bible, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. If you didn't bring a Bible, we've got a black book in the rack in front of you. Please just reach out, grab that, turn to page 975. 975, where you'll find Hebrews 8, verse 6. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's word aloud together, and we'll stand to honor uh, the one who gave it to us. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. But Jesus has now obtained a more excellent ministry, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted through better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need to look for a second one. God finds fault with them when he says, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I've had no concern for them, says the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he he made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old will soon disappear. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. So let's think together about mediator. What is a mediator? A mediator is somebody who brings two parties together. Literally, the word mediator and the Greek word that it translates means in the middle. Mediator is somebody in the middle. Uh, somebody we call upon when we have disputes. Someone that's needed when there's a separation. Now, we use a mediator if we've uh, got a conflict with our neighbor about a tree. We use a mediator if we've got a conflict with a company about a contract. Or uh, we might bring a mediator into our family situation if we have a conflict in our family. My favorite use of a mediator is in dating. Uh, When I was a young adult, I uh, became aware that there's this spectacularly beautiful young woman in Massachusetts, the next state over from where I was in Rhode Island. Her name was Ann Hunsinger, and uh, she was radiant in every way, and I knew I had no right to approach her for friendship because I didn't even exist in her universe, right? So uh, I wasn't going to just walk right up to her and and try to introduce myself because for all I knew, she, she would reject me and I would, you know, spontaneously combust. 
So I, I, I reached out to a mediator. I found that, that Anne and I had a common friend named Jeannie. And I said, Jeannie, you know, would you be willing to approach your friend Anne on my behalf? And just occasionally drop my name into the conversation, you know, and see if she winces or smiles. And maybe even occasionally say something nice about me, something positive, so that over time she'll have a favorable impression of me. And, and Jeannie agreed to do that. She went back and forth, actually over a series of months before we really, uh, before Anne and I actually got physically together ourselves. Uh, she did such great work that by the time Anne and I did get physically together, there was this sense of expectation we had that, boy, uh, these are two great people. We'll probably be the, the, the best couple since Adam and Eve if we could get together. So finally got together with Anne, and, and I, all I had to say was, hey. And we would be engaged just weeks later. I mean, it was that easy because of the mediator. There are a lot of examples of mediators in the Bible. Uh, Solomon played the role of mediator between two women who were arguing over a child. Esther played the role of mediator between uh, her people and a racist, narcissistic prime minister. Job sought for a mediator between him and his crisis and sovereign God of the universe. Eli, uh, one of the priests in 1 Samuel 2.25, said to his straying, disobedient sons, if one person sins against another, someone can intercede. By the way, intercede means go into the middle uh, uh, for the sinner with the Lord. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can make intercession? It's an important question. Because in, in that sense... Uh, all of us being rebels and aliens, uh, dis, uh, disconnected from God spiritually by nature, need a mediator. We all need a mediator. And this is the basic teaching of, of the Bible, that the, that the problem for humanity fundamentally, essentially, at its core, is that you and I are alienated from God. We have a good God who made all things. He made all things so that they would all be good. God saw that it would be good. That's, this is the refrain in Genesis 1. He saw that it would be good. He saw that it would be good. That's his intention. But the moment human beings turned away from God, there's a, a rupture in the center of the spiritual universe. And now human beings who are meant to reflect his goodness are uh, disconnected from God. And the Bible teaches as soon as you and I are disconnected from God, we start to be disconnected from other things as well, from ourselves, from other people, from the creation. And so at the heart of our lives is this nagging experience of alienation. We're not even aware of it necessarily, but there is the spiritual alienation. There is a psychological, there is so social and environmental alienation. And the, from that perspective, you can see that the story of the whole Bible is the story of uh, the search for and the work of a mediator, someone who will get in the middle and bring parties together. Now, I would suggest to you that we desperately need a mediator uh, in our world today. We are divided, perhaps, like never before in the world, and dangerously so. We face conflicts and separations, wars and rumors of wars that threaten our very existence as a species and on this planet. There's a crisis of alienation now. I mean, my wife now, oh, I married that woman, Anne, by the way. She's here tonight and still as lovely as ever. Uh, we've been watching together the Vietnam War. Have you guys been seeing Ken Burns' uh, series, Lynn Novick's? 
It's uh, 18 hours long. It's a big commitment, but it's so interesting and painful, actually, to watch this um, epic film because you, you realize, as Mark, uh, uh, Mark Twain said, history has a way of rhyming that conflicts just seem to multiply uh, um, generation after generation. And these, it looks very familiar and very tragic. They're interviewing people on both sides of the conflict. And one of the people who survived the war uh, said, the veneer of civilization is very thin. And that's what he saw in Vietnam, that the veneer, that good and decent people on both sides of that conflict ended up negatively contributing to crisis. Because the real nature, the, the human nature now, is subject to this kind of alienation. So we, we, we need this mediator. And, and the, the truth is that it was what they needed in Rome as well. Remember, I've told you that I believe the letter of, of Hebrews is written to a very small Christian community of Jewish background in the city of Rome, a house church. And this is in the early 60s, 60, 64 AD. This time, the emperor Nero is cracking down on Jews, persecuting Christians, and uh, they're struggling in every way. It's a kind of a crisis of alienation. And the writer of the Hebrews, by the time he gets to chapter 8, is saying, look, I have good news for you. You have a mediator. There is a mediator who is making with us a new covenant. And that new covenant, that new agreement that's negotiated by this mediator has better promises. He is bringing us together with God in a way that no other covenant has ever been able to do. So I want to reintroduce you and remind you of the character of this mediator tonight. And I'd like to do so by um, showing you how this new agreement, this new covenant, has three promises that reflect three essential characteristics, three qualifications of a great mediator. And they are these. We'll walk through them uh, more slowly. But first of all, mutuality. Mutuality. Good meter, mediator can achieve mutuality. Uh, familiarity. Good mediator is very familiar with the conflict and the people involved. And then solidarity. A good, even a great mediator will find solidarity with both parties. So let's look at our text here. The first qualification that we see in this Jesus is mutuality. This is a, a mediator must achieve active participation with both parties. There needs to be mutuality. Both parties. This mediator has to relate to party A and party B and get them both to participate. Now, this is what the, the writer is writing about in verse 9. By the way, this is a quotation. The writer in Hebrews is quoting from Jeremiah 31. It was written 600 years earlier, and yet it was written of a new covenant that was coming. And uh, God contrasts for Jeremiah the prophet these two covenants. The first covenant, which was with Israel at Mount Sinai, mediated by Moses, uh, did not continue. It broke apart. And so we see, even though God says, on the day when I took them by the hand, verse 9, to lead them out of the land of Egypt, they did not continue in the covenant. In other words, God's saying, I took their hand, I led them out of Egypt, and they held on to my hand for a while. There was mutuality, there was mutual consent. I said yes to Israel, Israel said yes to me, but they did not continue in that arrangement. And the agreement broke apart. See, they, they, they needed to participate actively. They needed to give their consent, which they did, but they also needed to bring their compliance. They needed to be obedient to this covenant. 
Moses was unable to secure Israel's obedience. Now, wait a minute, you say. Why would the writer of Hebrews speak of obedience? Is not our covenant a covenant of grace and not law? Is not our covenant through Jesus an unconditional covenant in which Jesus is the one who does everything? Well, yes, of course. It is an unconditional covenant, but there's a difference between the conditions for a covenant and the obligations of a covenant. God loves you unconditionally. There are no conditions, no strings attached, nothing you can do to make you, him love you less. And yet, at the same time, there are obligations that come with being loved by God. He loves you so much, he accepts you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to, to leave you that way. Notice the imperatives in the Old Testament, thou shalt. There are imperatives in the New Testament, the New Covenant as well, thou shalt. And, and, and if you want to think about that, you might think about a marriage. A marriage is a covenant, and it's an unconditional covenant. Remember, if you're married, you had to say, I'll love you in sickness and in health, for better or for worse. No matter what happens, I'm going to love you. It's unconditional. But there are still obligations that come with the covenant. There are things that you must do. You must serve or care for one another, seek forgiveness, offer for these sorts of things you must do, or the intimacy that the covenant is designed to create will be lost. So no conditions, but obligations. We must therefore actively participate. We must continue to give our mediator mutuality in this new covenant. And this takes some attention and it takes some effort. D.A. Carson writes this, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide towards godliness, godlessness, and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Now that's challenging, but Carson's right. If we're going to follow Jesus, it's going to take some effort. Now, notice the difference between the first covenant and the second covenant. In the first covenant, this effort is motivated extrinsically, but in the second covenant, the one that Jesus makes, this effort is motivated intrinsically. Notice, I will put my laws in their minds, Jeremiah had said, the Lord had said through him, and write them on their hearts. Paul picks up on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 when he says the first covenant was just written on the stones uh, with, with ink, but the, the new covenant is written on hearts with the Spirit. Ezekiel had said, I, I, I will give them a new heart. And so really, God is saying, I'm going to hold your hand and I'm going to help you hold mine. That's the beauty of this new covenant. I'm not just going to tell you what to do. I'm actually going to empower you to do it. Jesus puts his Holy Spirit inside of us, takes the heart of stone out, puts a heart of flesh in, and says, I've got a whole new set of desires that I want to, to build into your life. You're going to want to love God with your whole heart. You're going to want to love your neighbor like yourself the more you walk with me. That's what happens. He maintains both sides of this covenant relationship. What a great mediator that he would do that. I will hold you and help you hold me. That's mutuality. Let's move to the second uh, qualification of a mediator. She must be familiar 
with both parties. Familiarity. That means the mediator must become familiar with, with both parties and, and know what their interests are and with the circumstances of the conflict. Notice that this is emphasized here in the second great new covenant promise, which is that I will, they shall all know me. You can, you can see this in verse uh, 10b. He says, uh, I, uh, uh, sorry, 11, 11b. They, uh, uh, they shall not teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This is interesting. Apparently, the first covenant was one in which Israel knew about God, but the second covenant, the new covenant, is one in which they know God. You see the distinction. Uh, under the covenant with Moses, he was a bit of a teacher and would tell people about God. He had this firsthand experience of God. Moses was a friend of God and knew him intimately. He was hidden in the cleft of the rock. God disclosed himself to Moses. What a privilege that was. He knew God, but all he could do to replicate that was to teach people about God. And so Israel had this kind of, in general, secondhand knowledge. Not everybody had a firsthand experience of God in the same way that Moses did. But under the new covenant, God says through Jeremiah, they shall all know me. Well, you will not need teachers. I am going to become obsolete someday when Jesus returns and this promise is fulfilled. No teaching will be necessary. No one will have to wag a finger at you. You'll go, I already know that because I know God. This is so wonderful. God is saying, I don't just want to make you smarter. I don't want to just give you information. I want to give you intimate, personal, experiential intimacy with me. I want you to know me. Now, Jesus, the mediator, offers this to us like nobody else ever could. Here we see the uniqueness of our Savior, don't we? Because he offers us knowledge, familiarity of both these parties in his very essence, being both fully God and fully man. The writer of Hebrews has argued forcefully throughout this letter, starting in chapter 1, that this Jesus is the Son of God. He is himself God. He's the exact imprint of God's being, we read in the first paragraph. He sustains all things through his word. Jesus is God. He's familiar with God. I and the Father are one. I don't do anything that I don't see the Father doing, he says. He's the word of God, who is God made flesh dwell among us. Yeah, he's familiar with everything God wants for this creation because he is God, but he's also familiar with humanity because he is human. And again, the writer argues in chapter 4 and other places that he knows what it's like to be human. He's acquainted with our weaknesses. He's tempted. He's tempted in every way that you and I are tempted except without sin. I love this because it means when you're going through whatever you're going through right now, because of Jesus, God can say, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be you right now. I've gone through that. And you go, well, he's not gone through divorce. He's not gone through chemo. You know, he's got not gone through the temptations of living in an internet-connected world. Yeah, that's true. But all the emotions and effective dimension of all of those experiences, God has experience in the human being, Jesus. Knows what it's like to be alienated. Knows what it's like to be alone. Knows what it's like to be afraid. Knows what it's like to despair. Knows what it's like to suffer physical pain. So this mediator is uniquely familiar with both sides of the core alienation at the heart of the cosmos. 
I know all about the pain, Jesus says. I'm familiar with it, and I'm with you in the midst of it. Well, there's a third qualification. We've talked about mutuality, familiarity, but finally, solidarity. A good mediator must act fairly in the interests of both parties. Sometimes we talk about neutrality. I think a better way to think about it is solidarity. Uh, That mediator should be in solidarity with you and with the other party to the conflict. Your interests and their interests become the mediator's interests. And we see that that the third promise here in the new covenant is a promise of forgiveness of sin. And the question I would like to raise for you is, have you reflected recently on the cost of your sin to Jesus and how he bears it? Think about the blood of Christ. Reconciliation always costs somebody something. Isn't that true? Even if it's a small thing, if someone hurt your feelings, um, and you tell them, they're going to have to apologize. That, that costs them something, a little bit of pride. Uh, maybe sometimes a, a reconciliation co- will cost somebody money. But somebody in the equation will have to bear a cost, and a mediator oftentimes allocates the distribution of those costs across these two parties. But what has Jesus done? He himself has borne the cost to both parties, God and humanity. And he's done it in his blood. Whereas Moses just sprinkled blood of, a, of another animal uh, on Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai as a symbol of this, Jesus actually sheds his blood on the cross. I am so committed to you in solidarity, I will give my life. I am so committed to the Father in solidarity, I will give my death. One theologian says that, Jesus is the perfect mediator because he, this is the old language, I like, he conserves the interests of both parties for whom he acts. Think about that for a second. What are God's interests? Well, God's glory, God's holiness, God's absolute goodness, pure goodness, God's love for creation. And what are our interests as humans? Well, life, uh, peace, flourishing, This theologian says our mediator in Jesus conserves both of those interests through his life and death. Intensely zealous that God's honor should contract no stain, this ideal mediator, he offers his life on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And then having secured that supreme end, will with equal zeal seek the offender's rescue and reclamation. That's the redemption of our lives. Fulfilled, fulfilling our interests. So he's in solidarity with both. That makes this an indestructible covenant. That gives me so much hope. When I falter, when I'm not obedient, as I know I should, I know that I am being held by one who forgives my sins the price of his blood. He pays it for me. And so we have a mediator who says, I will go for you, through you, with you, through the life of sin, through the death that you bear, that you experience, even hell itself, in solidarity with you and with God the Father. I will not lose any that the Father has given me, Jesus says. Mutuality, familiarity, and solidarity. I'd just like to take a minute to ask you to think about where we might find the mediator in our lives today, in our world today. You know, when you're in a crisis, it's really hard to find the middle. You don't know where the middle is. But, and, and 
Jeremiah was writing to Israel at a time of crisis. It was the exile. The Babylonians were at the gate. The first covenant is almost completely imploding at this point. They're all going to be taken away. Where's the middle in that? Same thing in Rome. They're under persecution. There's chaos. Nero is lighting Christians on fire in his garden. This is crisis. Where's the middle in that? Well, the good news is we don't have to know the middle. We just have to know Jesus. He is the middle. He is the mediator. Where can you find Jesus? I want to offer quickly three things. First, in your life. Would you find Jesus in your life? If you haven't come to know Jesus as your Savior, I would encourage you to make that decision tonight, to give him your consent. That's all he asks tonight. He's eager to pay the penalty for your sin and for mine, all of it. And if you haven't said yes to him, please say yes to him tonight. Second place I want to encourage you to find Jesus, the mediator, is in the world. And there's so many places that the world needs peace right now. But just think for a moment about, for example, the environment. Jesus is the mediator reclaiming the goodness of creation for the creator. That means it's not just our lives that matter, but all of creation. Now, if we know Jesus in this way, it's not just that we know we should care for uh, the creation and be good stewards of the earth. It means that we have new resources to do so. We know the one who addresses the core issues that have made us violators of the earth. We know the one who gives us fresh motivation because he's given us a new heart, fresh understanding because he is familiar with the dynamics of the issue, and who gives us fresh power and hope to encounter the problem in a way that's sustainable. The final way I want to encourage you to find Jesus, the mediator, is in your neighborhood. You live in a neighborhood somewhere, whether it's on campus or somewhere else in the city. You have neighbors who experience alienation, especially even from one another. And I want to encourage you to find the middle in relationship to people. Let's get rid of Seattle nice. Let's build friendships with people. Let's grow as family. I told a story. One of our choir members uh, recently moved into a new neighborhood. It was on a cul-de-sac. She didn't know anybody, and she suspected that maybe this neighborhood was like our last one in which a lot of people don't even know each other. So to overcome this, she put a little invitation in everybody's mail saying, please come to my house. She's had a couple of gatherings. This summer, she had a a barbecue. People came with board games. They came with pets. They came with young family members, old family members. They stayed for five hours, 25, 30 people at her home. And she's the new one on the block. But she's watching young and old, people of different colors and ethnicities getting coming together. And now that's not about her. She hardly did anything. What she's doing is being available and giving witness to the presence of the mediator in the midst of that neighborhood. And all of us, we can all do the same thing. Well, the good news is we have a mediator, and we can do so much more with him than we can by ourselves. John Bunyan says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for stepping into the middle on our behalf. Our prayer tonight is that you would give us fresh motivation to love as you love through your Holy Spirit. We pray tonight that you would give us intimacy with God, that we would know we have been made one with God in you, and we would enjoy that relationship. Our prayer tonight is 
that you will give us fresh motivation, gratitude, knowing that you have so committed yourself to us that this project of redeeming the whole of creation will not fail and that we get to participate so we know the, how the story ends. We pray that you'll give us all these things in, our son, in your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we pray that he gets all the credit and glory. In his name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.